Welcome to the SaaS Sales Performance Podcast, the show for anyone wanting to be on the cutting edge of SaaS tech sales. We provide the tools you need to take advantage of the rapidly changing sales environment. We bring you the leading experts on the front lines of SaaS sales and distill down our famous masterclasses into bite-sized practical tips. Your hosts will be Ash Ali and Matt Milligan. And on this podcast, we'll be helping you transform your ability to sell more so you can smash your targets. Hey everyone, and welcome to the 25th episode of our SaaS Interview Expert series. I hope you're really well. In this episode, Matt Milligan chats to Owen Richards, CEO and co-founder of Air Marketing. Together, they pick apart Owen's fundamentals for outbound sales, why outbound needs a totally different approach to other channels, how to set milestone measurements, and why a tolerance for failure is key to success. Offering countless words of advice for founders, sales reps, and sales leaders, this is one to get the notebook ready for. So with no further ado, here are Matt Milligan and Owen Richards. Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Sales Performance Podcast. We talk a lot on this show about outbound, about top of funnel. I would say about 50% of the sales leaders that we had on the show in the last six months have expressed challenges and difficulty with lead gen, and it always seems to be a topic that comes up. That's why I'm delighted to have on today's episode Owen from Air Marketing. For those who don't know, Air Marketing is an outbound and outsourced lead gen agency. Welcome to the show, Owen. Great to see you. We were just talking offset there around your lack of sleep because of the kids. <laughs> I don't envy you on that front, but a lot of sales leaders are losing sleep over top of funnel at the moment. And for those who are listening to this and haven't heard of you or Air Marketing before, I mean, to kick off with, it'd be great if you could introduce yourself, tell us a bit about your journey in sales, and then also tell us a bit about air marketing. Sure. Thanks, Matt. Really good to be joining you today. So I think talking about that challenge, it's every year surveys go out to sales leaders and marketing leaders to talk about the biggest challenges and the biggest things they've got to overcome. And I think lead gen and generating quality leads at top of funnel is always in the top three, if not top one year after year after year so people aren't solving the problem and it's a recurring issue that we see time and time again. Air is designed to be a component of fixing that problem. I never believe in one channel or one thing fixing all of a, all of a problem that's that complex but certainly contributing to top of funnel creating pipeline opportunities by utilizing outbound as a channel so for most SaaS companies that we work with that would be Phone as a primary tool, supported by email, supported by LinkedIn, video, that sort of stuff to try and knock down the door, get some decent conversations with budget holders, decision makers, catch them at the right time with the right messaging, and hope that they're prepared to move forward to the next step and that we can qualify a reasonable opportunity and get them booked into a demo or a, a discovery of some sort for our clients. So we kind of sit as that outbound function or, or department, either alongside an in-house team or in isolation if, if required. So often with Series A or early stage organisations, it's us doing it for the first time, trying to work it out for them and help them to work out what works and what doesn't and go through that learning journey, but also with more mature organisations when it's about more resource and more flexibility. So yeah, it's a, it's a problem that we contribute to every day. And I'd love to make that the, the kind of theme for today's conversation, Owen, you know, thinking about founders and sales leaders who are going through this process for the first time just in terms of your own personal journey I mean 
you were working back in the glorious sunshine of Australia. <laughs> I mean, for, for those listening, tell us a little bit about your journey. Like, how did you end up back in the UK? How did you end up setting up air? But how did you get into sales? There isn't a salesperson that didn't fall into sales, and I'm exactly the same. Traveled to Australia after university, ran out of money very quickly, looked in the local paper because that was how you found jobs in those days and showing my age there. And there was a job for a telemarketing rep at a startup outsourced telemarketing company called Forex Marketing Group. I went and got a part-time job. You know, I knew to talk to people. I was very comfortable doing that and found I was actually you know, half decent at the job. I was then sponsored to stay and sort of grow out the sales team there as a plucky 23-year-old, knowing exactly what I was doing, obviously. I kind of learned by making mistakes and I stayed with that organization for eight years. We grew that to over 100 people. And I was you know, always on that journey of sort of 2IC to the MD there. And that role changed from sales and training manager up to eventually sort of GM. Great journey. Learned a lot. Learned a lot of things not to do, as well as things that, that worked and worked well. And moved from individual contributor in the early days into the sales management and then into more of a commercial leadership role. But always in a sales environment because we were a sales business. And these are, you know, we're talking about before the title SDR existed. This is pure telemarketing phone. And then, you know, that, that's kind of what drove that success, drove the passion into going and doing my own thing. And you know, when you get into your 30s and priorities change a little bit, I spent all of my 20s pretty much in Australia. My wife and I decided to think about having a family. And I think the lure of having babysitters available was, uh, was just too tempting. So it was time for us to get on a plane and Head back to where we had family and support networks so that we could start a family. And that was where Air was born, really. When we got back to the UK, we had our first child. Two months later, I, I started Air with a bit of backing from the company I worked from in Australia. So they invested and, and backed us. And Richard, who's the, the owner over there, is my business partner here in Air. And off we went. And that was 2016. What a journey. Congrats on all the progress to date. And it's been a, a roller coaster 18 months for everyone in the sales profession. I imagine for air, it's been much of the same. Let's talk outbound because it's a topic that comes up all the time, as you mentioned. There's often a little bit of perhaps naivety or lack of understanding for founders or sales leaders trying to build a sales org for the first time. From your perspective, why outbound? Why does it work so well? What are the benefits and what do we mean when we talk about outbound and B2B sales? So I'll answer your question, but in some ways I'm going to correct something that you said, because I think that outbound doesn't work so well a lot of the time. And I think going back to the naivety and decision making, that's part of the downside of outbound. So here are some home truths for people. Outbound is one of, if not the hardest channel to make work. It takes the longest to work and to get a return on. It often results in the longest sales cycles from any channel and the lowest conversion rates. And that sounds like I'm talking it down as a channel. I'm not. I'm being realistic. The fact is that any other channel, typically people are showing more intent before they come to you. So you see sales teams that are driven by founder-led. And what do they do? They go straight to the network, straight to the people they've already got some, some warmth in the relationship with. Or they're talking to people who have engaged with their content or turned up to their events or whatever it might be, inbound opportunities. And then they go to outbound and suddenly they go, well, outbound doesn't work because leads and opportunities and pipeline buyer behavior is not the same it's a very different journey to successful outbound sales so often it doesn't work and it doesn't work for that reason that people treat it just like other channels and don't study it and learn it and make huge assumptions around it the why outbound piece for me is around the fact that it's scalable and it's predictable so once you get it right it is a tough journey to ramp it six months 
nine months, 12 months plus sometimes, once you get to the point where you've ramped it and you understand the data and the metrics and the process and you've done that tweaking to get it as close to right, and it'll always be improving, it's now scalable. So we know the process, we know the messaging, I can layer in more STRs or I can layer in better technology to get my current STRs having more conversations and more engagements, and I can go further using those metrics. Whereas inbound tends to be far less predictable and there's usually a ceiling. So there are only so many people searching for your services on Google every day or every week, every month. Once you maximize budget on that, it's very difficult. There's only so many people in your network to get to events and those sorts of things, whereas outbound can just keep scaling, providing you've got an adjustable market that's big enough, of course. So the why outbound, it's about forcing scale. It's about forcing revenue growth for me. It's, It's about taking control of your ambition and your scaling journey and saying, this is now in my control and it's something I can affect. The problem is that people try to do that before they're ready to do that. And they try to do it without the data, without the expertise or the knowledge on how to make it work. And the problem is, is when you fail at a small level, it hurts. When you fail and you're trying to scale at the same time, it hurts a hell of a lot. And that's often where I think outbound gets a, a really, a really bad rep. So it's a great channel for a number of reasons, but we have to be clear on what it is. It is an expensive hard channel to get right but once you get it right it's right pretty much forever and it's been about scaling it fascinating yeah fascinating insights and that failure piece is really interesting because as you say you tend to remember your failures more than you do your wins right they hurt more and like you say if, if you've got an early experience of giving it a go investing some time and resource and capital into it and it doesn't work tend to leave a bit of sour taste in the mouth. And I guess it stresses the importance of getting it right first time around, right? Yes, it does. What I would say, though, is when you talk about failure, I talk about the phrase having tolerance for failure. When you're building an outbound program, in-house, outsource, doesn't matter. You must have all stakeholders having a sensible level of tolerance for failure. It will fail before it gets right. Nobody ever goes to market with a perfect message. Nobody understands their ICP perfectly from day one. You know, they have to go out and talk to people and they'll make assumptions. Well, our first 12 clients look like this and we'll go after more of that. But those first 12 clients, people already knew you. They come to you and bought from you because there's a relationship there, because they like you. Now go and speak to somebody where they have no idea who you are. They've never heard of your brand before. They're on a different buying cycle. They've already got a favoured supplier. Maybe they're reviewing in six months' time. Maybe you catch them on the right day and get a meeting, whatever it might be. But it's going to be so much harder to get that person And we've no idea that they are ICP for outbound. They might just be ICP because that's your network and those are the people that are there. So you do have to go through iterations, you know, multiple iterations before you get it right. And the tolerance for that journey, sometimes you get in and you get lucky early and you're near near enough and it feels right. Other times you can be completely wrong, but you could have sworn you were going to be right going into it. All of the people around the board table agreed it was sensible, yet it can be very, very wrong. And it's tolerance for that journey that will get you through it. So if we talk through a scenario, you know, I'm a founder, been relationship, primarily relationship-based or referral-based selling today, kind of capped out and exhausted that network. You know, we've got to that kind of post-seed stage when I look to get to series A. Outbound looks like a really attractive, predictable channel that we need to open up. Based on all of the learnings you've had over X years of doing this, like what are some things that can help de-risk it? And what should I as a founder think about when getting started? So I think a couple of things. If you are a sales-led founder, this probably doesn't apply. If you're a product founder, which is more often the case, getting your first sales hire right or getting somebody in who 
can head that up or contribute to it, whether that's part-time, full-time, on the board of directors, whatever, but somebody who understands it is critical. If you're a sales-led founder, it's probably easier because you understand sales, you've been through it, but yeah, product founders find that very difficult. I think stakeholder expectation setting is critical. So having your own expectations that it's not a quick ROI, it's not something that's going to prove itself in three months from a return perspective and that it's going to take time. So set out milestone measurements to say, well, I'm happy with progress, but don't make it based on revenue. So month one, it needs to be learnings. Month three, it needs to be pipeline. Month six, it needs to be opportunities that, that look like they might close. And you know, by month nine or 12, you can maybe measure it based on revenue. And look, that would be different depending on the average sales lengths and those sorts of things. So I think those are, those are some things. Don't get lost in the minefield of sales technology. I think my <laughs> advice to people first time around is to try and keep it simple. And my final thing would be to make sure that you build in the phone as much as you can, realistically. You learn so much from talking to your market, from having two-way conversations. I find a lot of first-time operations will try and set up around email and social because it's easier and it's more comfortable to hide behind it. I get it. I understand it. But you're missing out on such a great opportunity to go and have your market tell you, oh, no, we wouldn't buy that because of X, Y, and Z. We already use these people. Go and look at those people. You learn about them. And it's that sort of data that comes anecdotally that often gives you the learning that helps you move faster. So get out and have as many conversations as you can with a two-way. There's some really interesting points there, which I'd love to pick up in more detail. I mean, before jumping in to Outbound, are there any frameworks or is there, you know, a mindset or some practical things that founders can do to understand if if Outbound is the right channel to pursue and is it the right time for them to, to start looking at it? I mean, is there like a checklist that you'd recommend? When we're talking to a potential client, the first thing we talk about is sales value. Outbound is typically only right if you've got a sensible AOV or MRR or whatever you want to, to, to base it on. If your annual client value is not in the thousands, be very, very cautious about outbound because you will find it costs you more to win a client than the revenue you're going to get from that client. And obviously, the further up, the better. But then obviously, you need to adjust your expectations around sales cycle length and conversion rates and those sorts of things. My advice to people is to do the numbers. Understand what it's going to cost to hire a number of SDRs. Never hire one. Never, ever start with an SDR in isolation because what you're doing is prompting somebody in the corner and asking somebody who's not capable of doing the strategic piece to work out how to build your sales strategy or your outbound strategy. And then they'll be gone in the first three months, six months because they're isolated. They're not getting the support they need, all those sorts of things. But Work out what it's going to cost, put a cost line in, look at some basic activities, talk to people around how many conversations we're able to have, how many emails are we able to send, overlay that with some basic expectations around meetings booked, Mm. you know, and you can be fairly rudimentary with this stuff and then overlay with some expected or case studied conversion rates and average sales values and just see what that looks like. And then what I tend to say to people is double the costs half the conversion rate. And if it still works you out at some point in the black in the first four months, it's worth investing in. If it's tight on that first version, you've undercooked the costs and you've probably overcooked the conversion rate. My advice is do the numbers. Do the numbers. So many people think that oh, an SDR will cost us a couple of grand a month. Let's just pop them in. Here we go. And we'll start generating some pipeline three months in. Why aren't we getting a return from this? And it's because they haven't thought it through. So let maths and numbers be your friend would be my best advice. No, I like that. I really like that. It's quite a, a scientific way of thinking about it. Strips the emotion out 
And it means that in month one, you're measuring the progress in month one, not looking forward to six months in and going, where's the revenue? Yeah, I like that. And like as a founder, I'm immediately thinking about that in terms of customer acquisition cost. And you're basically asking yourself the question of, do the unit economics make sense? You know, can yeah. I justify spending this yeah. much to acquire, yeah. Yeah. acquire those customers? And I would say to people, don't put a revenue line in until month seven or something. You've got to work it out where your sales cycle links are. But if you've got a typical three-month sales cycle, um, outbound will typically be twice as long. That's the reality, certainly in the early stages when you haven't mastered it. So if you're writing revenue in the first six months, don't do it because you're potentially kidding yourself. And then what that does is you look at it and you look at a six-month investment and say, well, okay, it's going to cost me five grand a month. I've got to be prepared to go net negative down to 30K plus as an investment level here before I can start expecting revenue. Am I ready for that? You know, yeah. and it's that, that sort of thinking that really sets you up for being comfortable with the journey you're about to embark on. What would you say to early stage teams or growing teams you don't yet have the capability who are thinking in terms of your outbound function is basically just supporting and increasing the productivity of what you're doing today. So you think of, you know, leads that are in the pipe that just need to be followed up with, that need to be called. You know, they're not necessarily thinking in that mindset in terms of ROI and how to be scientific about the cost. They're thinking more of this is just going to help me get more done in a mm. week. I mean, is that a dangerous mindset to slip into? I don't think it is, actually. I think, you know, founder's time is hugely valuable. And it, obviously, it depends on what else you're going to be doing. I found, as a sales-led founder, I found it really difficult to let go of sales. I wanted to be in there, and I naturally gravitated towards that. So actually, all it would have been freeing myself up to go and find some other sales activity to do. I think if you're product-led or you're commercial-led or operationally-led, definitely there comes a point where you do that. What I wouldn't do is turn the tap off. So here, I'm going to start an outbound operation. Over here, I'm going to stop being involved in, in selling and being proactively and strategically selling. I think you still need to create some time, but maybe it reduces over time. I think there's some logic in that argument. What I would say is when you're hiring an SDR, you've got a resource there. You've got time. You've got X amount of hours of somebody's time every week. We need to be playing them where they're going to be most successful based on the goals that you've got. So if your goals are bringing short-term revenue, get them involved in the referral networking stuff as soon as possible. Get them some wins. Get them some confidence. Get them feeding revenue in, and they'll grow off of that. If your goal is to supplement and to incrementally win revenue on top of what you're doing, well, actually, you're just going to replace straight away. So it, it won't achieve the same thing. So I think understanding why you're doing it in the first place is an incredibly good advice. But yeah, I don't think it's the worst thing to try and free yourself up as a founder. You mentioned they're hiring Owen. I mean, it's the elephant in the room at the moment. You know, hiring SDRs is <laughs> never easy. You know, so at this stage, you've been scientific, you've looked at the strategy of the business, you've looked at your numbers. You've confirmed that it makes sense to go ahead with launching outbound. Now, how do you build the team? How do you go about hiring SDRs? So if you're in a scenario where you're sales-led, you understand sales and you're hiring the team straight away, I would always be looking for somebody who can move into a coach leader role in the next three to six months first, even if they're not there now. So if I'm product-led, my first hire is somebody who is leader straight away. Somebody's going to build it for me because I'm not going to try and make it up for the first time myself and bring somebody in who, who knows what it looks like. Yeah. If I think I'm close enough, then I'm going to hire somebody who's an individual contributor, but whose next step very quickly should be into leadership. And they should be hungry to show why they should be moving out of individual contributor and into leadership in the next three, six, nine, 12 months, whatever that period is. That then makes that first hire in some ways more exciting, but in some ways harder. 
because I'm wanting somebody who's able to contribute revenue, who's able to contribute pipeline, but who also has leadership capabilities. That first hire is the make or break. You have failed if you get that hire wrong the moment you get it wrong. It doesn't matter what happens in the next six months because you'll find it out that they're wrong and you'll have to go back to square one or you'll be building the wrong culture right at the beginning, which is very, very hard to reverse. So I would say take your time over that first hire. Do not compromise with it. Get it right. At an SDR level, well, I think you touched on it there. There's over a thousand SDR open vacancies in London alone right now. How do you stand out? What I would say is it's like anything, you've got to sell the role. You've got to make sure that you are competitive at a salary level. You've got the right comms. You've got clear culture. I and mean, SDRs love a good culture. That's got harder with things being remote. So think about it. Don't just plonk sales reps in and expect them to build the culture. Think about it and invest in it and take the time to actually work hard on making it a great place to be and take the time to plan that sort of thing out. So I think the temptation is to rush, to go fast. Right, we've made the decision, let's make it happen. My advice would be to stop and think, get it right first time by taking your time and being prepared to say no to something that doesn't feel right, even if it slows you down. Because if you get it wrong, it's very, very hard to step back and reverse. Yeah, it's it's not an easy journey. The market right now, as we were just speaking about before the show, is, is super hot, right? And there's so so much competition in the market for good talent right now. There's some, some really good practical advice there. I had a conversation with a client last week who talked to me about three things. We were talking about SDR, outbound functions, and how he likes to think about the support that needs to be in place or, or the essential things that need to be in place for success. And he broke it down in three ways. He talked about skills. So he said that your reps, your, you know, your SDRs need to have the right skills or at least a base skill set. You then need to provide them with the tools and resources that they need to be effective. And then you need to keep them motivated. I mean, in your experience across those three, how do you do that as a sales leader? You know, you're a sales leader, you're building this SDR team for the first time. Any practical advice or lessons learned that you've seen work well? Yeah, so the motivated piece, I think, primarily comes down to the leader. You can get good reps with a poor leader and it will break very quickly. So focus on leadership and focus on things like having data available so people can see what's working and what's not, a collaborative approach so that people are able to contribute to the strategy, particularly in those early stages. You want SDRs who can come in and feel like they can bring an idea to the table, that kind of open forum I contribute to the strategy, I can bring an idea, I can collaborate with my leader. Tight culture works really well at that stage. Look, I think most people throw money at the problem when it comes to motivation. That's the last thing I'd be looking to do. Yes, money counts, of course it does. But I think people want to be in a place where they feel heard and where they have an impact and they understand the impact they're having on a business and they understand the journey and the goal that they're aiming for as a company and the role they play in that. So I'd work harder on the culture than I would on making it Here's an extra 100 quid bonus. I think people fool themselves, but that keeps people motivated. It does across a week. It doesn't across a month or a year. So leadership and culture for me are the two things that keep people motivated. And those things should be repeatable as well, rather than having to work hard at them. Technology, yeah, my advice would be don't take every tool under the sun. Tools are harder to adopt than you think they're going to be. Adopt one at a time. Make sure you get it right. Understand that it does take time. Start with some basics, get your data right. There is nothing worse than working with poor data. 
but equally understand there's no such thing as perfect data. So again, have some tolerance for some inaccuracy there. So go and get the data tool that's right for you, Cognizant, Zoom Info, whatever it is, have some decent quality data there and then overlay that with an engagement platform plus something else, a data platform, lead IQ or Lush or whatever it might be. But don't give reps eight bits of technology from day one because it just won't work. I think you're better to run with something for a period of time and then look at where the opportunity to get better is and put one more thing in at a time, maybe one quarter or whatever it is. My advice with tech is don't overdo it, but embrace it at the same time. And then the skills piece, I believe you should be hiring for culture fit and hiring for personality and training the skills in an SDR team. I often find that when you see SDRs jump company from company, they often come with bad habits as well. So you have to be very cautious of that. And I think as an organization, it's very easy to say, oh, let's take these people who would have been trained by somebody else and not do the hard work. It works less often than you think. So be prepared to walk people through that process, hire people that are coachable, hire people with an open mentality who are a good culture fit for you and who are aligned in terms of the way that they think, and then take the time to work with them and develop. The most powerful tool for SDR development is coaching, getting in and listening to their calls reading their emails and practically walking them through, getting them to feedback on what they did well, what they didn't do well, what they could have done differently, listening to each other's calls, critiquing each other's calls, and just creating that coaching culture. For me, if you do nothing else in terms of training and development, that is your LinkedIn. That's your foundation for growing a team that want to get better and want to learn. Our team are really good at putting together some expertise and guidance on how to do things. There's also a really good ROI calculator for if you're going to go and build your SDR outbound function for the first time. So that process I talked about with numbers earlier, there's a good spreadsheet you can go and fill in that will give you the calculated numbers that you can do a free download of on our website. So that, that might be worth looking at if you're thinking about doing it for the first time too. Brilliant. And I'm going to put you on the spot now, Owen, a final quick fire question. <laughs> Of all of the cold calls that you've been on or observed, what's the most bizarre cold call that you've ever been involved in or, or, or witnessed? <laughs> I've got two. One is mine and one is somebody else's. My most bizarre moment was when I told a prospect I loved them. We built enough rapport that I felt like I was talking to my mum and instinctively at the end said, love you at the end of the call, but had somebody listening into the call at the same time and it was recorded. So that was a, a well-renowned moment in my sales career that I will never forget. I also had somebody in the middle of a call, and this is here, make one of the strangest noises you've ever heard. Where I don't know if he was maybe going to fall off his chair or something in the middle of it. And again, it turned into, you know, like you get the videos, boomerang videos, but we, we ended up with a boomerang sound of this noise. Which I won't make the noise now because it would be embarrassing, but... That noise played in our office every day for about a year after it happened, where somebody caught this full recall and went, what on earth was that noise you just made? So that was probably the strangest thing. And how the prospect managed to continue the conversation after hearing that noise, I have no idea. Genuinely, it was, it was a, an odd moment, to say the least. I absolutely love it. Those are the moments that, that you really remember, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, we still we still rip into that person today. He's our sales director now, so he's moved up the ladder, but I still remind him of that noise every so often by walking into the office and making the noise in front of him. So very entertaining. Owen, I've loved catching up as always and look forward to doing it again soon. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. By uncovering blind spots on performance, motivation and skills. UHubs helps busy sales leaders at top SaaS companies to optimize their sales enablements so that they can develop reps and grow revenue.
The UHub's Pulse platform visualizes each team's development needs, personalized upskilling, and provides data-driven coaching recommendations. These save sales managers 40 plus hours per quarter and help reps to ramp up 30% faster. Supercharge your sales team by booking a demo today.